Hello, my name is Will, and you're listening to Exploding Helicopter, the only podcast in the world dedicated to celebrating helicopter explosions in film. Now, in the 1970s, the disaster movie was king. During the decade, cinemas were chock full of big-budget blockbusters full of big-name actors facing big-scale peril. We had burning tower blocks, capsizing ships, huge earthquakes, even giant meteors. But, by the end of the decade, it seemed filmmakers had exhausted every possible natural or man-made calamity. Fortunately, there remained one last terrifying threat to humanity, a menace so deadly people had never before contemplated the possibility that it might pose a world-ending threat. So, what is this danger of which I speak? Well, let me tell you, it's bees. Yes, that's right, those little stripy fellows who like to make honey and pollinate flowers. So if you haven't guessed already, we're talking about 1978's The Swarm. To help me look over the film, I'm joined by a man who can be relied upon to save himself from any disaster, He'd take the last parachute, he'd stop a small child getting into a lifeboat, and he'd snatch that life-saving antidote right out of your hand. So joining me today is Booze from the Sweet Feathery Jesus podcast. Welcome to the show, Booze. Hello, thanks for having me. Um, I've been a long, uh, long-standing long fan of uh, the Sweet Feathery Jesus podcast, so uh, do you want to take a moment to sort of uh, tell people uh, about that? Yeah, it's a very short podcast most of the time, don't worry, we edit, and we talk about news stories mostly from China and the region surrounding it, monkeys, <laughs> and we have dramatic readings of posts by idiots of Facebook. Well, before we uh, get stuck into uh, the film, I always like to ask people if they've seen anything interesting lately, so uh, I don't see why I should make an exception with you. So have you got anything to tell us about? Well, the last film I watched was that James Brown biopic. I don't know if you've seen that. Get on up. It was disappointingly competent, to be honest <laughs> with you. Do you like your uh, biopics to be a bit dodgy? Well, most of them are. I mean, this one was, but nowhere near as bad as some of I've seen. I don't really subscribe to the whole, you know, so bad it's good thing, except for music biopics. And no one does it like VH1 did in, I think, the early 2000s, when they did a Michael Jackson one, there was a Monkeys one, and the best one was Hysteria, the Def Leppard story. You've got to watch that. Is there anyone I would know in uh, in that film? No, and they're all from, I think one of them's Irish, one's from Texas. Bear in mind, most of them are all supposed to be from Sheffield, apart from one. And they got, the one who's supposed to be from London, I think he's got the Texan playing him. (laughs) But you know, you're watching it and there's no way you could turn it off because you're thinking, I've got to keep watching because very soon the drummer's arm's going to come off. How are they going to do that? Do they uh, tie his arm behind his back? I think they did. (laughs) It's a lot of, they did a lot with uh, camera angles. Going back to uh, Get On Up, uh, who who plays James Brown? How do they acquit themselves as uh, the, the godfather of uh, soul? Well, the actual performances are pretty good. The rest of it, not so good. Just a lot of scowling and going... <laughs> <laughs> well, you've pretty much described uh, James Brown's entire career there. A lot of scowling and... <laughs> okay, well, thanks for that. Let's find out a little bit more about The Swarm. For more than 20 years... Scientists have known that a swarm of killer bees has been headed towards the United States. Now, Warner Brothers presents Irwin Allen's The Swarm. We have visual contact. Identify. A black mass, sir. A moving black mass. We have been invaded by an enemy far more lethal than any human force. Starring Michael Caine, Catherine Ross, Richard Widmark, Richard Chamberlain, Olivia de Havilland, Ben Johnson, Lee Grant, Jose Ferrer, Patty Duke Aston, Slim Pickens, Bradford Dillman, Fred McMurray, 
and Henry Fonda. It is more than speculation. It is a prediction. The swarm is coming. So The Swarm came out in 1978. As the film's title suggests, the source of terrifying peril are bees. Not your honey-producing, flower-pollinating garden variety, but deadly African killer bees. So when a swarm of the lethal insects invades the USA, a top entomologist or bug expert to the likes of you and me is put in charge of saving the day. Typical in a disaster movie from the 70s, it's stuffed with famous actors. So we've got Michael Caine, Richard Widmark, Henry Fonda, Fred McMurray, Olivia de Havilland, Richard Chamberlain, Lee Grant, the list goes on and on. It was directed by Erwin Allen, who directed two very famous disaster movies uh, in that decade, The Poseidon Adventure and The Towering Inferno. So with credentials like that, you'd think The Swarm would have to be a bona fide classic. Though, uh, if you did think that, you might be uh, sorely disappointed. Booze, I think The Swarm was a first-time watch for you. What did you make of it? Well, you wouldn't watch it twice, would you? That's the same. <laughs> but one of my earliest film memories is actually of seeing the trailer in a cinema when I, I must have been five when it came out. So thanks very much for giving me the opportunity to be forced against my will <laughs> to watch it. You've waited, after watching that trailer, you've waited a long time to subsequently watch the film. Did uh, did the trailer not like hook you in? Were you not entranced by the, the prospect of uh, watching these killer bees? I wanted to see the bit where the bloke fell through the window. That's the only bit I can remember <laughs> from the trailer. But that didn't disappoint. Is that the, the guy who flings himself through the, the cafe window? Yeah, in extreme slow motion, he uh, he kind of takes a run up and launches himself through it. I quite like the sort of the the sort of the moments leading up to that because we see him outside in the street, sort of flapping around before he sort of throws himself the windows, and he, we kind of see him flapping around in slow motion, and it kind of it kind of looked to me sort of like one of them uh, Northern Soul dancers. So I was kind of thinking <laughs> he... <laughs> he had the good moves. As I've kind of like perhaps hinted, this isn't the finest film. What was your overall take of the Swarm? Well, it's very, 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 very long was my main thing I took away from it. And not very good. I mean, there's a lot about this film that isn't very good. (laughs) And we've only got a little bit of time. What were the worst aspects of the film for you? Well, I think you could safely say it's the script. Because if you've got a film that lasts for nearly two hours and 40 minutes, you would think that you wouldn't need quite so much exposition shoehorned in to the script and sounded really really clunky but they went for that big time so virtually throughout the first probably 45 minutes every other thing the characters say is explaining some aspects of the plot to you who someone is what they're doing why there's a 24-hour taping system in the missile complex the script in this is abysmal and uh, you know some of the acting is really ropey but it's hard to know how much of it is down to the actors and how much of it is the fact that the actors are just left marooned by a, a script that is as bad as this i've got a lot of respect now for some of these actors i think you know any anyone can look like a good actor in a good film but when it comes to absolute piece of dog's mess like this <laughs> It really sorts out the good ones from the bad ones. Michael Caine, I know he's been slagged off for his appearance in this film, but I I actually thought he was pretty good, all things considered. I particularly enjoyed Michael Caine's random shouting in this film, which reminded me of of a fine master of the uh, unexpectedly shouted line, uh, Al Pacino. It was very Pacino-esque. 
Absolutely. I also enjoyed his entrance into the film where uh, we first meet him wearing um, what appears to be sort of like a safari suit, which he's wearing a turtleneck sort of top with as well. Yeah, and a safari suit with leather patches on the elbows. (laughs) You know, it's really one up Roger Moore there. Oh, yeah, and talking of Michael Caine and unnecessary details in this film, there's a whole running gimmick of Michael Caine's sunflower seeds in this film, which <laughs> which you think is going to play some part. Like, maybe the bees are going to be, like, lured, you know, he's going to realise, actually, the key to solving this crisis is the sunflower seeds. There's some chemical in them that we can use to, to sort of lure the... Um, lure the bees into some sort of trap but no it's just just a completely unnecessary detail which you know Richard Winmark's general kind of uh, seizes the seizes the sunflower seeds off of Michael Caine's character Michael Caine's character then demands them back later then there's a scene with Michael Caine and Henry Fonda eating sunflower seeds I mean they just keep turning up for, for no reason at all it's like some kind of really bizarre product placement it's a shame they didn't pick a better film because I don't know anyone who eats sunflower seeds. Yeah, it didn't really take off, did it? We could all be walking around with leather pouches full of sunflower seeds now, like Michael did. So the 70s disaster movies covered sort of a load of different types of threats. So, you know, capsizing ships, burning tower blocks. How well did uh, bees work for you or, or not work for you as a source of bow-chilling terror in this film? Well, they're not even a scary insect, you know, I don't like insects, but flies would be a lot worse. I guess flies don't sting you, so there is that aspect. But throughout the film, people who get stung but don't get killed hallucinate gigantic bees hovering over them. And the bees look pretty cute. It's hard to sort of really picture sort of world-ending terror when we find out that the swarm of the bees only moves at seven miles per hour. Yeah, I mean, there's no way this would happen these days in a film, but there's actually a bit in it where the bees are making their way from this small town in Texas that's been attacked to Houston, and it comes up, it says ETA, three days, ten hours. Yeah, I mean, I was on the edge of my seat for the whole of those three days. And it felt like real time as well. But a huge problem in this plot is the fact that actually most of this terror threat could have been averted if people had just gone inside and closed their windows. Yeah, in fact, there is a bit in the film where Michael Caine gets locked inside a kind of a chiller in the back of a calf, and you just think, well, nice one, just sit there and and wait it out. But no. That's one of the reasons why we have people, uh, you know, after they do a bit of Northern Soul dancing, that's why we have people then throwing themselves randomly through windows, and that becomes kind of a theme in the film, because obviously the film, you know, the director, Erin Allen, is, is aware that, you know what, these bees... They can't open doors themselves, so repeatedly throughout the film we have people throwing themselves inexplicably through windows. Erwin Allen really had that whole falling through a window in slow motion thing down, though, by this film, so he's got to use it. Yeah, and we see that um, falling through windows uh, trope quite a few times in this film, um, especially when they are, uh, during the train crash sequence, when they're evacuating this town that's had the uh, misfortune to host a flower festival on the uh, on the day of the swarm. So uh, the, the the bees kind of, uh, for no uh, for no good reason, decide to uh, attack the train. And, you know, the, the train drivers inexplicably lose control of uh, the train. It goes crashing off the tracks. Just sort of randomly, we just see loads and loads of actors just throw themselves through the windows of the train in a way in which just doesn't <laughs> remotely seem to make any kind of sense at all. It left me thinking, 
that they just couldn't wait to kill themselves off in this film and, you know, go home and cash their paycheck. Well, there's certainly no toughened safety glass in this film. That's for sure. But yeah, by that point, we've followed the uh, love life of this love triangle between uh, three very old people. Um, which it was a bit like a sort of feature length Sun Life <laughs> over 50 plan advert. <laughs> but you know, I'm going along with it. It's, it's a brief respite from all the B action. And then they just all get killed off in this train crash and that's it. That is the most redundant subplot of this film because we see this romance between, uh, as you say, these, this sort of septuagenarian love triangle between, uh, Olivia de Havilland, Fred McMurray and, uh, Ben Johnson, which is, uh, it's all a bit last of the summer wine. I should have pushed Ben Johnson off in a, in a bath on wheels. That would have been a great sequence. And it, you know what? It couldn't have been any worse than, uh, the other ones that we had to watch in this film. So we're sort of, uh, we're sort of moving on to, uh, we're moving on to that sort of part of the film. So I wanted to just sort of talk about the cast. It's stuffed to the gunnels with aging Hollywood royalty. Um, we've got, uh, Michael Caine as the, uh, ostensibly as the hero in this film, as this sort of bug expert. And there's a whole sort of bunch of other sort of famous, uh, actors from TV and, uh, and film. Was there anyone that stood out for you, either for reasons good or bad? Well, I think Michael Caine tried his best. It was a valiant effort. Um, I would go Richard Widmark, lent it a gravitas that it probably didn't deserve. I thought he did well, considering everything. Yeah, he was a lot better than this uh, this film deserved, that's for sure. There was an actor in this film that I did particularly enjoy. I don't know if you, you know, there were an awful lot of subplots in this film. I don't know if you uh, noticed this particular one, which was, uh, there was a kind of the town doctor that is this kind of like Mexican sort of... Uh, <laughs> Latino doctor and he kind of helps out some of the sort of the B victims and they're obviously this being a disaster movie there's a pregnant lady she earlier in the film she sees her husband like killed in one of these like horrific B attacks and then obviously a little while later she goes into labor and uh, this Mexican doctor you know helps her with the uh, delivery and we see her wheeled out of surgery and he tells her oh you know you've just given birth to a you know to a lovely baby and um, you know he kind of commiserates with her about her husband and uh, he then bl- very blatantly starts putting in some moves on her about you know how uh, how he thinks <laughs> how he'd like to be sort of you know part of her life going forward uh it's the 70s though wasn't it you know if you don't throw a dart you're never going to hit the bullseye so uh oh, you know, it's I'm... the hot latino blood can't help himself <laughs> I also enjoyed the uh, the young boy who's who witnesses his mm. family being uh, being killed off. I mean, he is one of the worst child actors I've, I've probably ever seen. He's also one of the sweatiest uh, child actors I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> but I uh, I uh, you know, given that he grew up in a in a sort of small town in uh, mid America, I was uh, mightily impressed by the fact that this sort of twelve year old not only knew how to uh, you had to drive a car, but also, you know, deals with the uh, deals with the loss of his parents, not by sort of lying in his bed and blubbering, but by uh, going out, getting a few Molotov cocktails and then taking on the swarm. I was thinking, you know, God, blimey. He's got gumption, that kid. I did love the uh, the picnic scene where his parents got bumped <laughs> off. Not so much for the, you know, them being covered in bees and the kids act in which is awful, as you say. But for the clothes, mainly the hats they were wearing. Did you see the hat the guy had on? It was like a massive, great big wicker type affair with uh, one of those green um, plastic visors built into the brim. 
<laughs> now, I wouldn't advocate watching this film again, but if you missed that, then you, you might have to just go back and check it out, because I want one. 70s disaster movies were famous for their groundbreaking special effects, and there's plenty of opportunity here for them to demonstrate their skill as we get to see a kind of nuclear power station blown up. There's also the train crash we've talked on, and also we uh, get to see Houston set on fire as uh, as another bungled and failed attempt to uh, to get rid of the bees. What did you make of the special effects uh, in this film? Well, you know, they were okay, apart from one thing, the bees. <laughs> They really didn't know how to do the bees properly, especially when they were swarming. And there's no way that they could have a credit after. I mean, I didn't stick around for the credits, but they couldn't have a credit saying no bees were harmed in the making of this film. Because, well, the kid turns the windscreen wipers on when the uh, windscreen's full of bees for starters. That couldn't have done them any good. And uh, lots of actors get covered in bees and rolled around. So I think we might have lost a few bees. It's probably a sign that you just couldn't make this film now. It had to be made in the 70s because, uh, like, Petta would be down on this film like a ton of bricks unless it could ensure the safety of each and every single bee. Things have really turned around for the bee. <laughs> Since they made, made this and the bees are like some life-threatening menace that was going to wipe out America, you know, now you're not allowed to touch a bee, otherwise you'll kill the planet. So I don't know who the bee's PR firm is, but they're doing a pretty good job. We do get to see some sort of big explosions in this film, including a, a nuclear power station, which, together with the sort of train crash, this seems to be the sort of the last great hurrah of somebody blowing up lots of models, because it looks like the train crash sequence looks like somebody's Hornby train set, and the nuclear <laughs> power station being blown up, it looks like something that was built in an episode of Blue Peter, and somebody then sort of puts a firework underneath it. Yeah, I think I saw a couple of Sabutio men around it when it went. And we also get to see uh, Bee Vision in this film as well. Did you uh, spot that during the uh, picnic scene? Sadly, not something that comes back at any other point in the film. But we, Yeah, they, they spent all that money researching exactly what a bee's vision looks like and recreating it. And, um, and then they don't use the effects again. That's very disappointing. Well, I guess we should be grateful they didn't film all two hours and 40 minutes of this film in that way. I'd like to see it from the bees' eye view, the whole thing. Talking of uh, the bees in this film, which we find out are, uh, are African killer bees, did you uh, detect a certain note of racism in this film? Yeah, there is one point where uh, I think it's Richard Widmark says, we're going to get all the Africans out of Houston, and uh, you can't say that these days. Richard Widmark also has another line where he says, uh, "I'd track down and destroy every African in this, uh, in this, in this film." He doesn't say in this film. <laughs> <laughs> he broke the fourth wall, looked straight into the camera, gave a wink, and uh, you know, there's it comes up that we see in a big, uh, in a big sort of uh, ticker tape type machine. We see uh, there's a big sign that sort of says. Uh, you know, 46 towns are in the path of the Africans. So, uh, you know, I don't know why they just didn't call them bees, because that's what they were. But they, there seems to be, you know, they seem to have decided to go with calling them the Africans, which, uh, I don't know. I don't quite know what the film was uh, trying to do there. And there isn't really a large number of noticeable black people in this film. I don't think I saw one. I guess OJ Simpson was busy. Okay. I think we're going to take a quick break now, and when we come back, we're going to be talking about the exploding helicopter action. 
Hello, everyone. I'm Chris Tansky. And I'm Dan Fogarty. Together, we host the Title Pending Movie Podcast. Title Pending is a weekly show where Tank and I get together and go over what's going on in the world of movies. Each episode, folks and I take a look at the biggest new release of the week and discuss the weekend's box office data. Then we pick a topic to discuss in depth from top tens to current issues to subjects that tie in to that week's new releases. We always do our best to entertain and enlighten. So come and check it out for good times and good films. Check out the Title Pending Movie Podcast. Available on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and everywhere that quality podcasts are found. Hello, and we're back. And we're going to be back now talking about the exploding helicopter action in The Swarm. Mercifully, in this turgid slog, we don't have to wait too long for the exploding helicopter sequence. This occurs early in the film, before the nature of the threat has been properly established, when a couple of military helicopters encounter the swarm. Unsure what to make of the black, buzzing mass in front of them, the hapless pilots decide against ascertaining the potential threat from a safe distance. Instead, our gung-ho aviators choose to fly headlong into the swirling, unidentified phenomena. Whilst this recklessness does indeed allow the pilots to correctly identify their enemy as bees, the manoeuvre predictably causes an unspecified aerodynamic problem for the helicopters. The pilots lose control and the choppers plummet from the sky, crash into the ground and burst into flame. Booze, what did you make of the exploding helicopters here? Well, I mean, I'm not as much of an expert on this kind of thing as you are, but it was refreshing, really, um, to see it done without any CGI. Obviously, they wouldn't have done that back in the late 70s. So it made it seem kind of real to me until you look closely or look, basically, until you look at it. I mean, these pilots here would probably win a Darwin Award, frankly, for their uh, their decision making at this point in the film, because uh, you know they, they won't be winning any acting awards. <laughs> <for sure. laughs> yeah, because they come across this great big sort of unidentified black mass, and you know, rather than sort of eyeing it up from a safe distance, they uh, they obviously just decide to fly headlong into it. And so we see sort of inside the sort of cockpit of this helicopter and we see all the bees kind of like hitting the uh, windscreen of the of the helicopter, which looks really like someone's throwing handfuls of raisins at this uh, this particular helicopter. And then the pilots, for, for reasons known only to the pilots themselves, they decide to sort of throw their hands up in the air, take their hands off the controls, and uh, understandably these these helicopters just plummet from the sky. Which you know it does obviously mean that we get to see these these two uh, helicopters explode. Which, as you say, no CGI is used here. It's two what looks like two Airfix models here are dangled on a bit of string into a piece of artificial ground, and then. <laughs> blown up with a firework or something so it's far from the greatest helicopter crash but yeah i you know i enjoyed the the fact that somebody obviously had to spend time and energy making those helicopters for somebody then to just spend two seconds blowing them up yeah so this film does have some very uh, shonky special effects with its exploding helicopter action though it it does remain the only film to uh, have B-related exploding uh, helicopter. So, uh, you know, your time wasn't entirely wasted here because you have witnessed something truly unique. Mm, yeah, but it, that unique uh, thing happened about 10 minutes into the film. So it was another 2 hours and 25 minutes to go, and that time was wasted. Yeah, so I think the takeaway message here is, uh, you know, feel free to watch the opening 10 minutes of this film and watch the exploding helicopters and then check out. Definitely don't stick around for the end, because uh, 
she said to him, the love interest said to him, um, so is that it then? Have we beaten the bees? And he basically went, oh, I don't know. <laughs> After setting fire to the Gulf of Mexico. Well, I think they were leave, trying to perhaps leave the door open for the swarm too. It's not too late. Michael Caine's still around. I think the stars are in alignment for uh, a sequel to this film. Let's hope not. Booze, thanks for uh, joining me to talk about The Swarm. Pleasure. Don't forget you can always check out our latest reviews at the Exploding Helicopter website, or you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr. We do a bit of everything everywhere. We'll be back soon, and until then, keep watching the skies for those exploding helicopters. This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com.